Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. We are continuing the series called Life of David. We're going to be in 1 Samuel, and uh, we're going to start off in 1 Samuel 16. So if you've got your Bibles and want to turn there, that would be fantastic, and we'll get going in just a minute. But while you're looking that up, last week I had a chance, I had to kind of run out of here quickly because I went, and my brother-in-law had a ceremony where he was being commissioned and uh, being named a colonel. So it was a full bird ceremony, and um, it was fun to get to go to see that. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to one of those. It was kind of my first experience, but it's a really cool experience. On you know, one side, you've got all the uniformed men, and on the other side, you've got all the, uh, all, all the civilians uh, and in this group of men and women that are uh, set apart to help lead our country and to serve our country. Uh, there's just a, a sense of reverence, a sense of respect, a sense of uh, kind of the chain of command that, that takes place there and the solemnity of the ceremony. Uh, there's, there was a general there that was to run it that was about six foot eight and was just one of the most imposing men I've ever seen. Uh, I kept wanting to say, dude, would you just scream? You can't handle the truth once. Like I just, I wanted to hear it. You know, I just wanted to see that full expression. And, uh, but the reality was I didn't see anything that looked that kind of macho, silly, kind of grandiose sort of an attitude. What I saw was, people that were full of respect, people that understood where they fit, people that understood there there was a chain of command and that they were positioned for a season and for a time. And uh, I wanted to just read a statement that my brother-in-law made as he was kind of talking after he had received the commission and was kind of giving some words back to everyone that was there in attendance and was just talking about the expectations of this role uh, that, he, that he's wearing. And, you know, it's, it, it's got to be something that when you walk in a room, everyone has to stand. Like there's got to be a sense of respect and awe when you take that on yourself and weightiness to it. And here's what he said. And I thought this was impressive. He said, I understand I wear the rank. The rank doesn't wear me. This is not all about me. I get that with this rank comes a history, a tradition, and certain ideals. It's been around for a long time and will be around long after I'm gone. In other words, this rank stands alone and I'm honored for the privilege to stand with it for this season, however long this may be. I seek to live up to the expectations and traditions and requirements of this rank. I want to serve well and faithfully execute the duties of this rank to the best of my ability. And there was this solemnity that was there when he was saying that. But I love that statement of, I wear the rank, the rank doesn't wear me. Meaning this is something that I'm, I've been bestowed, I've been given to steward for a season, but it's not mine to own or possess. And I think that's an important thing for us to understand about leadership. And today we're gonna look at the, the kings of Israel, the first king, especially Saul. And this one who had been given this mantle of leading God's people and this responsibility to lead God's people. And so we're gonna look at, at his example and really what that is. And throughout the Bible, especially throughout Samuel, nothing matters more than the leadership of God's people to the health of God's people and to the blessing of God's people. And so it's an incredibly important thing. Now, maybe you don't feel like a leader. 
I know when I talk about leadership, sometimes people go, man, that's not me. Like, I'm happy behind the scenes. Don't make me do anything. But here's the reality. We all lead in different avenues of life. We all lead our kids, if you have children, we, we all, uh, we, we have to lead our, our, our spouses. We may need to lead our team uh, at work. We may need to lead our, our organization or uh, a charity that we run or a serve team or a group, or at the very least, we all have to lead ourselves. And so there's leadership requirements or expectations for every one of us. And so as we dive into this today, I think there's going to be some great stuff here for all of us to learn from. And as we do, I want us to learn everything we can about what it means to lead well. And primarily, as we look at Saul, unfortunately, we're gonna have to learn that by learning what it looks like to lead poorly, or seeing what it looks like to lead poorly because Saul struggled a great deal. So let's look at 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. It's gonna be a kind of a weird place to start, but let me tell you why I'm gonna, but you'll see, I think, in just a minute why we're gonna go 1 Samuel 16, 13 and 14. It says, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So we're picking up the story here from where we were last week. If you weren't here last week, maybe go back and listen. But David uh, was kind of pulled out of nowhere and anointed as the future king of Israel. Saul had been the very first king. He had been uh, anointed as king. He'd begun his, his reign as king, but he had been rejected and David then had been brought in. And so you have the ceremony where Samuel, uh, the spiritual leader of the nation came and he anointed David. And it doesn't look like anything changes at first. Things kind of continue as they were and Saul still appears to be king. And yet you, we know that David is the one that God is eventually going to rule through. And so verse 13, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from the day of his anointing forward and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And the spirit, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now this is kind of an interesting, an interesting passage, but what we see here is the transfer of power. So not just had Samuel originally anointed Saul and then transitioned over and anointed David and said, look, God's rejected Saul and he told Saul that. And then he anointed David as the future king. But you see that the presence of God, the spirit of God that had been on Saul departed from Saul and came down on David. Why did, now, now, why did that have to happen? One thing I would just wanna say, uh, this, this is a longer lesson we can get into today. Into today. But this is not the same filling of the Spirit that we experience in the New Testament. That, that comes from the new covenant promises that Jesus brought in his death and resurrection and his promise that the Spirit would come to us. And so we enjoy the new covenant promises of God's permanent indwelling and sealing of the Spirit. That's different from what's going on here in the Old Testament. What's happening here is that there was a, a specific uh, kind of presence of God upon an empowerment of God for, the, for God's leaders over the nation of Israel. And so when Saul was anointed, it said the spirit of God descended on him saying, this is my man that's gonna lead our country. And then here you see Saul, that God left Saul and poured out on David because there's only one king that's acting as God's primary leader in that role. And so that's why you see this kind of a strange thing that takes place. We also see, if we were to continue to read, that Saul's in a really miserable place. Uh, Saul begins to question off a lot as he begins to, uh, the, the spirit's withdrawn from him. In fact, what we see is Samuel left and Samuel will never see Saul again. So Saul is without God's presence and he's without God's word. That's a bad place for someone to be. And so as you kind of get in this place, we see clear kind of emotional, mental, spiritual anguish that Saul's in. Uh, we see some anxiety and depression that begin to kind of take over his life. We, we eventually see paranoia and Saul is in trouble. 
And as we unpack this, as we move forward in the weeks ahead, we're gonna see how this affects, uh, affects Saul and, and kind of where he is personally. What I wanna do today though, I want us to go back three chapters and I want us to lay the groundwork for why Saul ended up in this kind of a place and, and really look at his leadership. And I wanna show you the tragedy of Saul. And if you like a good novel or a, or a good biography, if you like a good military history, you're gonna love this today. Um, we're just gonna let the story kind of speak for itself. And we're gonna read through large chunks and I wanna show you this, but I just want us to unpack the story of what happened with Saul and kind of where he went in his life and his leadership so that we begin to see kind of what a failed leader looks like and why it was he, specifically he failed. And what we're gonna see with Saul is there's three, made, three chapters that are given here that really detail three major mistakes or flaws in his character. So we're gonna start in 1 Samuel 13. And so if we go back there, to just a couple chapters, flip to 1 Samuel 13, and you guys can just read along. We're gonna, we're gonna read some chunks here, and I want you to see the story, but beginning in verse five. It says, now the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. And so uh, Saul's out with his, his army and he's gathered his army around. The Philistines are just outside. Jonathan actually goes and picks a little fight over here to kind of stir the pot and get this thing started. And that's kind of where we come in. And the Philistines are, are, are sensing this. And so it says the Philistines mustered their armies to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in the multitude. Now they came up and encamped at Michmash at the east of beth Evin. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some of the Hebrews ran across the fords of the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. Man, how's that, how's that for a start for a leader? Man, 30,000 chariots, armies like the seashore. Uh, your army, where are they? And don't you love that? It's like, they're hiding anywhere they can find a hole. Like uh, caves, cisterns, tombs. Like they're laying with dead people going, maybe they won't look here, you know? They're running anywhere they can just trying to find their way out. And so Saul, it says that the people are with him, but they're trembling if they haven't run away already. Some already climbed across the river and got, just got out of Dodge. Verse eight. It says, and Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, and Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he himself offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Well, there's some foreshadowing, right? He didn't wait. He wouldn't wait. Samuel said, I'll be there in seven days. Probably it would, he didn't wait the full seven days. Probably what happens here is he waited into the seventh day but not till the seventh day was finished. Samuel, we think, probably showed up, showed up on time just at the end of the day. But Saul saw the people scattering and his fear, his anxiety, his stress got the better of him. And so he went ahead and sacrificed himself, made the sacrifice for himself. And so then you get to verse, uh, just a little further, you get down to verse, uh, verse 10. As soon as he had offered the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Uh, Samuel said, what have you done? Uh, don't you love that? The, so Samuel fi finally shows up and says, Saul goes out to meet him and greet him like nothing happened. Samuel, what's going on, buddy? How's it going? You know, like, nothing, like, like he hasn't gone ahead and offered the sacrifices. So Samuel can't see the smoke rising and smell the burning flesh of the sacrifice. I mean, Samuel's probably aware of what's going on, 
But Saul's acting like nothing happened because he knows he's been exposed. And Samuel says to him, what have you done? It's interesting that in verse 13, you see Samuel's response. Samuel said, Saul said to Saul, you have done foolishly. That's actually a, a, probably a stronger condemnation than, what, than, than the way we think about it. In the Old Testament, to someone, someone to act foolishly was to, to be spiritually stupid, basically. And so he's just calling him. He's like, hey, you spiritual idiot. And so he's actually calling him out and saying, and you've done something really, really dumb here. He says, you, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Man, consequences, right? Uh, this is a strong, strong statement that Samuel makes. Saul your kingdom could have lasted. Your kingdom could have passed to your son and to his sons and to his sons if you would have obeyed the Lord, but you didn't. And because you didn't, God has rejected you and it's gonna to go to another. He's gonna find another prince who, whose, kingdom, or whose, whose heart is after his own heart and the Lord's going to pick someone else. But it's an important statement. And I think what we need to understand here is the king does not act as a free and independent person doing as he pleases. The king's not free to do whatever he wants. The king is subject ultimately to the Lord. And if, if history has offered us any lessons, any of you history buffs that like to read history, if history's offered us any lessons, it's that when humans rule over other humans, bad things happen unless God is ruling the human that's in charge. When humans kind of take power over someone else, inevitably bad things happen. It's, you know, the saying of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. And so when we're, when we're endowed with power, inevitably there presents ourselves with a problem that something bad can happen. And so, so Saul is beginning to act, uh, act in a wrong way. And right here at the outset, God withdraws the kingdom from him because he says, nope, not on my watch, not, in my, not with my people, not with the man that I chose as king. He said, that, that's not gonna be the way that we roll as a nation. And so God um, wants to make sure he understands that all men are subject to God. See, when, when Saul comes and he makes that sacrifice, he's not just being kind of expedient and efficient, but in the name of efficiency, he's actually usurping spiritual authority. That Samuel was the only one that had the authority to act in that kind of a way. And so Saul's actually saying, I don't need to do things God's way. I can go about them and do them my own way. And God says, no. And Samuel says, no. And so there's this difficulty that takes place there with his, uh, with his confrontation and the consequences. And imagine that moment when you just think of, I could have been the one whose kids and grandkids and great-grandkids got to lead the nation and in, in a moment, that's just been withdrawn and it's been handed to another. <clears throat> now, it's interesting. The people, it says, um, he, here we just begin to see the early warning signs of how this thing begins to fragment and, and fracture. Uh, but it says, interesting, interesting the, the phrase it uses, of the people were hard-pressed. And like, I kind of get it, right? Like 30,000 chariots around you, an army that looks like sands on the seashore. Like, I, do you feel the stress of that? 
I mean, it's not something, not a world we live in, so we probably don't think about that. One of the other things that shows up in here is that uh, the Israelites weren't really allowed to, to work with metal and, and create metalworks, but the Philistines were. And so uh, they have all these uh, kind of iron instruments of swords and spears and stuff. And the Israelites don't have anything and they bring them. The only ones that have them are Saul and Jonathan. Everyone else is working with like hose and, you know, whatever else farm equipment that they could find and grab. And so that was their army. So the people were really feeling this difficulty and Saul was stressed out and he disobeyed the Lord and it cost him the future of his kingdom. Now, his son, Jonathan, we're gonna see in just a minute, looks like a guy who would have been a tremendous king. As we watch Jonathan, he looks like he would have been an amazing ruler and yet he's never gonna get a chance because of what his father did. Do you ever feel like things are out of control so you kind of take things on your own, kind of do things your own way? You, you strive out and go, man, it doesn't look like God's gonna show up. It doesn't look like this is working out. It doesn't look like I can trust this. So I better kind of take the reins and do my own thing. And I better press forward and get things done. Um, wives, husbands, no elbows being thrown here right now. But I know you do this because I do it. Whenever it looks like things aren't working out, I feel like, man, someone's gotta do something here. I'm gonna have to do it. And that's what you see with Saul as he took matters into his own hands and did things his own, his own way. And he let his circumstances ultimately drive his behavior. He looked at his circumstances and that created fear and anxiety and stress. And because of that, he thought, man, I got to do something. And he allowed that to shape um, his behavior. Now, let me show you how this weakness plays out in Saul's life. Now, what happens when we take matters into our own hands? And what happens when God's people use, when God's leaders use people instead of serve people? Let's look at the next chapter, verse, chapter 14. Starting in verse one, what we're gonna see in this chapter is that fear and force are never good substitutes for love and the reliance upon God's power. Fear and force of a leader are never good substitutes for love and reliance upon God. 14.1, one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who had carried his armor, so they're still at these battle lines, right? Uh, the Israelites and the Philistines and they're there and Jonathan looks at his armor bearer, the guy who's kind of his right-hand man and he, he looks at him and he says, come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the, other si- garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And isn't that interesting? Jonathan says, hey, let's go start a fight. Let's go, let's go pick a fight with these guys. Let's go do something that kind of runs out and trusts the Lord and says, let's go fight God's enemies the way we're supposed to but he doesn't tell his father. We don't really know why he doesn't tell his father, but perhaps maybe he sensed Saul's anxiety. Maybe he sensed the, the fear in Saul. Maybe he knew Saul would never let him go. So it says that he doesn't tell his father. And then you get to, and it says, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gabeah by the pomegranate cave in Migran. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of uh, the son of, Ah, I can't even pronounce that, Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Now, why does it go into this like weird thing? Like you get this good story of this guy going, hey, let's go pick a fight. And then it starts talking about this priest and he's the son of this guy. And why is that there? Well, if you look back at at 1 Samuel, in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, you have this line of the priests and and this, uh, this priest named Eli. And it says that his sons were evil. And so the, the Samuel had actually come in and withdrawn the priesthood from them and said, you are rejected as God's kings because you as priests aren't, aren't faithfully executing your office as a priest. 
And so these are, uh, now you have a rejected king who's hanging out with a rejected priest uh, there at the front of the battle lines trying to lead God's people. And so that's the setup of the story. And if, you've, if we'd read the whole thing, you would have caught that. Verse four, within the, uh, I'm sorry, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other. And so there's these two, kind of he's going through this pass and it's these sheer cliffs, kind of rocky crags on one. One of, the, one of them is called, uh, depending on kind of how you translate it, a slippery slope. And the other is kind of this dangerous rocky thing. But they're, they're taking a dangerous pass to try to sneak up on these guys. And so then Jonathan in verse six says, to, to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And the armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And don't you love that? And that's a scene out of a movie, right? And so John says, let's go over. He says, perhaps, perhaps God will show up. Maybe God will do something because if God, God can save by many or he can save by just a few, what, what he's saying is it's not the matter of how many people are in the army that's gonna bring about the victory. It's whose side is the Lord on that's gonna bring back the victory. And so Jonathan is confident that, and if God is with us, who can be against us? No one can, no one can thwart God's effort if we, if we just walk by faith in him. And even though we're few, and we're just gonna trust the Lord perhaps he'll be with us. I mean, that's an act of faith, right? That, that's a guy stepping out in faith and being willing to uh, go attack the enemy. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to have a faith like that? And nothing can hinder God from saving us if we're many or if we're few. But let's go act and just trust the Lord and trust that he's going to do good. Um, what he's saying is that not, it doesn't matter the numbers. Um, it matters much more your faith and kind of which side the Lord is on and if he's called you to do something. I mean, does that sound like someone else in the book of 1 Samuel? Like a couple chapters ahead who looks upon the size of his enemy and isn't, isn't shy or he doesn't back down from that? A guy named David with a giant named Goliath. Sounds very similar to what that, and we'll get to that in another week. So let's go to verse seven. Verse seven says, And the armor bearer said, Do all that is in your heart. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say, Come up, if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands and this will be a sign to us. So Jonathan lays out this plan and says, Hey, we're going to sneak up on these guys. And when they see us, if, if they just invite us to come into the camp, then we'll know. I mean, God's opened the door for us to attack and we'll go full bore and attack. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines after sneaking across these crags. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes they have hidden for themselves. These guys are actually mocking them. So it's kind of a derogatory term when he calls them Hebrews. He's like, hey, look, these slackers have been hiding in the holes and they're actually crawling out of the holes that they've been, in, that they've been hiding in. And so notice what they say to them. Come up to us and we'll show you a thing or two. And so they're, they're mocking them, not thinking any, Thing fearful at all. And Jonathan said to the armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into our hands. And don't you love that? It, I mean, he's there facing 30,000 guys and it's him and one dude. And he's like, hey, let's go, we got him. And he rolls in. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and the armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and the armor bearer killed them after him. And at first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, within it. <clears throat> there were a half furrow's length and an acre of land. 
And there was panic in the camp and in the garrison. And among all the people, the garrison, even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. So you've got these guys that are probably playing poker and drinking a little bit. And all of a sudden, these dudes, two dudes show up and 20 guys are dead. And all of a sudden the camp starts freaking out, right? Like we're under attack. And so all sorts of panic starts happening. They begin to run away. Not sure exactly what happens. Um, well, Saul's watchmen looking back across the deal that are looking out over this, just begin to see something stirring. Something's going on over there. And so they go back and alert Saul of what's happening. And so verse, uh, verse 16, it says, and the watchman of Saul, <clears throat> excuse me, and the watchman of Saul in Gabeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And Saul said to the people, count, see who's gone out from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Hijah, the priest, bring the ark of the, of the Lord here. For the ark of God went with the people at that time. Now, while Saul was, taking, was talking to the priest, the tumult of the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, get out of here. And Saul and all the people, he said, withdraw your hand. And then Saul and all the people who uh, with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was very great confusion. Now, the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were there with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in all the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing and they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Now, do you get the, the whole story of kind of what happens here? Saul, uh, Jonathan charges into there. Uh, they, they quickly kill 20 people. The Philistine army begins to panic. And so they're running around. They're actually just attacking anyone they see as everyone's trying to flee the scene. Saul from across the kind of the, the area looks out on the battle scene and goes, hey, what's going on over there? And there's clearly that there's a battle breaking out. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, the only two that are missing. Does Saul go, my son, and run out into the battle right away to save his son? No, he calls for the priest. Hey, why don't you come over here with the Ark of the Covenant and let's, let's pray a little bit and see what's going on. What's happening there? Probably is he's wanting the priest to give him some kind of an affirmation from God that he's gonna win the victory. He doesn't wanna take a chance. He doesn't wanna sacrifice his life. He doesn't wanna risk kind of leading out in battle and losing, and losing. And so he's saying, hey, can you kind of rub the rabbit's foot of the Ark of the Covenant and tell me that we're gonna be okay and then, we'll charge, then I'll go into battle. You know, no mind that my son is out there fighting ahead of me right now. It's a cowardly act, but it's also a fear, an act based in his fear. And this is like a scene out of Braveheart, isn't it? Like he's gone, Jonathan's gone over to pick a fight He's like, man, we're gonna go stir this thing up. But wherever, uh, wherever there's someone going to charge into battle, there's always a Robert the Bruce. They're ready to play politics back behind. And that's what you see with Saul. Saul's playing that role. He didn't wanna charge after his son. He wanted reassurance that God's gonna help him. But then what happens in verse 20? It says that the fighting increased more and more. And so they see more and more Philistines fleeing. And all of a sudden Jonathan goes, I mean, Saul says, well, wait a minute, I don't wanna miss out on this thing. Like once it's obvious that the tide has really turned and the Philistines are fleeing, he's like, okay, let's go. And it says they all charge into battle and they begin to kind of run after them. Then there's this funny scene where uh, you, you actually get, it says that the, uh, the guys who are mercenaries of the Israelites who had gone over the Philistine side. So there's people in the Philistine camp that were Israelites who had 
kind of turned traitor and, and were operating as mercenary soldiers there. It said, well, when they started thinking, well, maybe Israel's gonna, gonna win, they switched sides real quick in the middle of the battle and said, hey, we're gonna get back on this side now. And then the people that were hiding in all these caves that had run away and weren't willing to do anything, they're like, hey, you know, there might be spoils of war. And so they jumped in and ran with the Israelites into battle. And so you kind of just have this comedy of what's going on here uh, as they're fighting this battle. But all of this, what we see is that Saul what is really what he lacked spiritually. Man, his spirituality, his religion was really a game to him. It was something that he, he put on in order to maybe help him succeed in life, but he wasn't going to walk with the Lord when it might cost him something. And so you see that, um, that he doesn't really trust the Lord. You remember what Jonathan said earlier when he, when he began this whole thing? And I love the conviction. He says, God doesn't need doesn't, doesn't need a whole lot of people to win a battle. He can win, he can save by many or by few. So let's charge into battle and maybe, perhaps, God will be on our side. Look at verse 23. We're gonna look at this. Uh, we're gonna see that Jonathan was right. It says, so the Lord saved Israel on that day and the battle passed, from, passed beyond beth Verse 24, and the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath upon the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And you see an interesting thing that takes place here in uh, this circumstance with, with Saul. Um, notice the contrast in verse 23. Verse 23, it says, and the Lord saved the people on that day. Think of a battle where you got 600 soldiers and you win against 30,000. Would you, how, how would you feel on that day? How would you feel in any battle where you're alive and everyone's running away except for your guys? You're gonna feel good, right? You're gonna celebrate. But the very next verse, what's it say? But the people were hard pressed that day. The Lord saved them that day, but the people were hard pressed that day. Why? Because Saul, the leader, had, had laid this oath upon them and said, let's keep going until every one of them's dead because I want my vengeance. I'm gonna have my day. I'm gonna have my victory. You do not eat until, we, until everything I want done has been fulfilled. This is a, we're gonna see where, kind of where this leads from there. Verse 26, and when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was, dro was dropping. Probably honeycombs were falling off the trees there. And it says, when they ran into the forest, um, the honeycomb, honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. And so he put out the tip of his staff with the hand of his, uh, that, that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put it to his, his hand to mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright when I tasted the, just a little bit of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, that they may be found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So you see this interesting kind of connection that takes place or transition that, that Saul is telling the people they're, they're not allowed to eat. And Jonathan understands really what, is, what it is that happened. He says that, God, that Saul acted unwisely, that, that Saul chose an expedient short-term solution. You know, if I push my people harder, if I press them more, if I, if I drive them more, then maybe we'll have a greater victory. But what Jonathan's saying is the victory wasn't that great because the guys were exhausted. 
They'd already fought battles. They'd already run. They'd already run after the enemy. They'd already charged and challenged them. They'd already risked their lives for Saul. And because they'd not eaten, now, now they're, uh, they're both emotionally exhausted, but also just physically exhausted. They're worn out. And so there's a problem uh, with Saul in that he's driving them. In the end, what happens is we're gonna see that, that uh, when Jonathan says, my, my father's troubled the land, what happens is the people eventually, they, they charge and uh, keep going and keep going and keep going. Eventually they are so hungry that when they slaughter some of the animals, they just begin eating. They just begin eating. And unfortunately they're eating animals that still have the blood in them, which is against the Jewish dietary code. And so it's against the law. They're not allowed to eat animals. That, uh, but, but because they were so hungry, hungry people do crazy things and they're just gonna eat whatever they can to get their hands on because they're starving in the middle of this battle. And so now not only were they not permitted to eat by Saul, but because they followed Saul's oath out of fear, they didn't fear the Lord and they actually committed to sin as well. And so you get, they, they, they did trouble the land. So out of that, Saul comes and he builds an altar. Verse 31, we kind of see where <clears throat> Saul goes with this. It says, then they struck down the Philistines from that day and the people were very faint. The people poured, uh, I'm sorry, I'm gonna skip down just a little bit just for the sake of time. Uh, what happens is the, the people take, uh, take advantage of the, really the animals they've slaughtered. Saul comes upon the scene and realizes they've committed a sin. And so Saul actually builds an altar. And he says, well, let's try to cover it up. Let's get a rock, let's make an altar, let's sacrifice the Lord, then let's eat the animals uh, so that we can move forward. And so you begin to understand what kind of what Saul's doing here. And here's what's interesting is leaders who drive people hard are really relying upon the flesh. Um, how hard was Jonathan having to beg his armor bearer to go with him into battle? He didn't, and yet his armor bearer said, I'm with you heart and soul. But these men are being driven. They're being forced into battle. And so out of fear for Saul's oath, they keep going and they keep going and they keep going. But, God, but, but Saul's worship here is reactionary. It's not an authentic worship. He builds an altar and worships God. And it says uh, down in verse 36 that this was the first altar that he ever built. So his worship shows up whenever he's in trouble and whenever he's in need. Um, we aren't ever like that though, right? We don't ever worship just when we're in trouble. Like there aren't any Jesus take the wheel Christians around, not, not in this room at least, right? Like that, that you can ignore God day after day and then something goes on, you lose your job, you get a bad call, you get a report and all of a sudden you're like on your knees <laughs> seeking the Lord. Um, that's a good time to seek the Lord probably just maybe start a little earlier. Maybe not make that the first one. But what you see is Saul's not done. Verse 36, he says, then he drives his people and commands them to go on and charge forward all the way until the morning light. And so he's not gonna let them sleep through the night. And when, you're, when your confidence is in the flesh, you're fearful and forced in your leadership. When your confidence is in the Lord, there's a natural power that comes from the Lord that's not driven by you. Uh, but hard driving leaders sometimes can be tough. I remember uh, playing football in high school and uh, there was an episode that I remember that I always laughed about that there was a guy that, uh, any, of the, any of you that are as old as me, remember what it's like playing before coaches had regulations uh, and everything was kind of fair game and you know what I'm talking about. But uh, we were at practice one day, I think this was two days, so it's August, it's hot, it's crazy. And uh, we were running sprints and there was a guy that got down on his knees and he was, uh, honestly, this is kind of gross, but he's just, he was on his hands and knees just dry heaving, just, just trying to let it go. 
And I'll never forget coach coming over and him, standing over this guy who's just on the ground dying and just screaming at him and saying, I don't see anything. Like if you're throwing up, I wanna see something. And he's screaming at this guy and just get, you need to get up. You need to get back in the game, get back on the line and kind of laying into this guy who's clearly sick. And we're all just looking at it going, I think it's real. Like, I don't know any high school kid that wants to dry heave in front of his friends just to be cool. And like, maybe you wanna get out of sprints, but that seems a little extreme. Well, that guy ends up in the hospital that night, dehydrated. Uh, It was all kinds of trouble. Uh, And the next day, you know what the coach did? He screamed at us for not letting him know when when we're really sick because that was clearly our fault too. Uh, Who would you rather have leading you when you look at this passage though? Jonathan or Saul? Who inspires you? Who stirs your heart? Who makes you want to go? I love what Jonathan says. He says, see how my eyes have become bright just because I tasted a little of the honey? How much better if the people would have eaten freely of the spoils that we could have done in our battle. See, he's more concerned about the people than he was just seizing the moment. Friends, that's a leader. That's what a leader does. He's more concerned to be a blessing to the people than than to press the people. And so that's a leader... As a, as a husband or a wife, that's a leader as a parent. It's a leader as a boss. That's what a leader looks like as a coach. It's what a leader looks like as a big brother or a team captain. And there's a difference between leaders that use people and leaders who, who, that allow God to use them to serve people. And what you see is the difference here in Saul. And Spurgeon said of this passage that God's people need to work smart, not just hard. And I love that about what it is he says. Um, and as you think about this, what, what I see, in, um, what I see in, in, in Jonathan is a guy that you want to follow. And as you get down to verse 45, what you see is that um, eventually because Saul had pronounced this curse upon them, Saul was going to have to kill whoever it was that had violated his oath. And Saul steps forward and he's actually going to kill his own son. he's going to kill Jonathan. And Jonathan, being the man who stands up under it, says, do as you will. Like, I'll take it if that's the cost of what it it is I need to do. And he's willing to step into that. And here's what happens in verse 45. It says, then the people said, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, so Jonathan, who has worked this great salvation in Israel, die? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. The people who were fearful to speak up against Saul earlier, man, there was nothing that could keep them to speak up, to keep them from speaking up for Jonathan now. It says they ransomed him, they rescued him, they delivered him from certain death because of their voice. Friends, people will lay down their lives for a leader who will sacrifice his own life for them. People will, will, will sacrifice greatly for a leader who will give his life for them. What we see in Jonathan is that he had a clear conviction about who God was. He had a strong expectation that God's gonna show up. And he took decisive action on behalf of God for the people. He was the leader Saul should have been. And can you sense how great a king he would have been if, if he'd had the chance? But he never gets that chance because the role of king was God's to give and not theirs. And Saul had messed that up. And let me, let me say this. By all accounts, Saul was a very successful king. On the outside, as you get to the end of chapter 14, what you see is uh, that, that Saul, 
extended their borders, that he was a great warrior, that, that all the external numbers said that he had a successful reign as king, that he did well in all these things, but that masked what was going on spiritually. Then you get to 1 Samuel 15, begin first verse there says, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over, his, over the people of Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them. And so he's, Samuel's gonna send, um, give a direct command to Saul to go and wipe out the Amalekites, this other people that had uh, been a thorn in Israel's side for, for years. But notice in verse 15, the, the phrase he uses there. He says, now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Remember, this is where it began at the beginning back in 13, that Saul didn't obey. He didn't listen to the Lord and he didn't obey. You get to 15, Saul's still being told to listen to the word of the Lord. What we see as you unpack 15 is that Saul did not obey. He did not do what he, tried to, what he was supposed to do. And then when he was confronted with Samuel, he said, I'm sorry, but then he kept making excuses. I'm sorry, but the people, I'm sorry. And he wouldn't really own it. And so you come down to verse 22 and look what Samuel says. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Because he knew Saul was putting on religiosity, but he didn't really have a heart that loved the Lord and a heart that trusted the Lord and a heart that wanted to obey the Lord. And so Saul's um, kingdom is gonna be a mess. And it's interesting, Saul has such anxiety and stress about him because of his disobedience, because of his lack of faith, his lack of confidence in the Lord. Um, but here's, here's what you see in the scriptures over and over is even when our circumstances look fearful and fuzzy, we need, maybe especially when our circumstances look fearful and fuzzy, we need to trust the Lord and obey the Lord. We need to, we need to rely upon him. Isaiah 50 verse 10 says this, let him who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And even when things look dark and you aren't sure of the way ahead of you and you feel like, man, I'm groping for the next step and I'm not sure exactly where it is I'm supposed to go, is even in that moment, you were called to trust the name of the Lord and to rely on him and to seek him out. And Saul was following up on his people when he was not leading out spiritually, even though he was leading out politically and, and in terms of his, his warfare. Friends, life is hard enough without you having someone beat you up and push you and drive you. Now, that's not what leaders need to be. Good leaders bless people more than they press people. And Saul's ambition and Saul's focus on himself caused him to push people in a way that was more focused on his success than their good. That's why when we get to chapter 16, Saul's such a mess and why the kingdom is ultimately taken away from him. And for the sake of time, I'm gonna to have to cut it a little short here. Let me just say this. Where's David at this point when you get to verse 16? Remember, David has been anointed as king He's been said he's gonna be the future king. Um, Saul's gonna call for him and it says David's out with the sheep. David's gone right back to being a shepherd. What did he do when he was anointed as king? Man, did he call his brothers and go, so wait, tell me about this. Like Samuel came and he looked at you, Eliab, and he said, no, you're not the guy. And he went down to all of you guys and he said, none of you the guy. Then they called me in and said, that's the guy. Like say, I mean, he could have gloated, right? It'd be pretty easy for the little brother to gloat. Or in that role, it'd be pretty easy for him to take a victory lap around town to say, hey, I'm king, where's the, where's the party? Let's celebrate. Um, but what it says he did, he faithfully went back out and just went back to being himself and was a sheep. And 
amongst the shepherd, being faithful to do all that he called to do. Um, I had way too much to say today. I still got about three things I need to say that I'm not gonna have time for. So let me just say this. Um, and we all struggle with this. We all struggle to figure out how is it that I am to live this out in my own life, in my, in my marriage? How am I to, to live out being a leader in my family? How am I to be a leader at home? And so often for us, there's just a little bit of Saul in all of us, right? And we need God to take that and to transform that and make us more like his son Jesus, ultimately. And so what we need to understand is that's important for each of us. Um, ultimately, there was another son who came, like a Jonathan, who was willing to initiate on our behalf. There's another son who was willing to sacrifice his life. There's another son who was willing to take decisive action for the good of others. Another son who was willing to submit to his father. Another son who was a blessing to his people. His name was Jesus. He was a greater Jonathan for each of us. He's ultimately made a way for us to be reunited to him. And so ultimately, let's let that that leader um, cause us to trust and to obey. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray and just ask for your grace and mercy over each of us. Um, Father, would you help us to lead as those who bless people? Father, might we be a church that isn't pressing all the time, but that just is a blessing to one another and blessing to our city. Father, would you drive out the residue of Saul in our hearts and make us more like Jesus. Father, we might be a blessing to our world. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.